You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Government policy has a cost. Every law and regulation passed by the government has a human toll. The Cost, a series of We Are Libertarians, is a one-on-one interview that tells the story of an average person as they deal with the outcome of policy. I'm Chris Spangle, I'm your host, and today we'll be talking to Jerome Caldwell and Richard Samuels about what it's like to live inside the prison system. I'm joined by Brett Bittner in this interview, and just an update, both Richard and Jerome are doing well and continue to give back to their community. Here now are Richard and Jerome's story. This is a continuation of episode 160. Brett and Chloe went out to Freedom Works and uh, attended a seminar. Yeah, we, we were talking. It was the uh, Hashtag Justice for All Summit uh, that Freedom Works put together with uh, writers from across the country, activists from across the country, to talk about justice reform, um, talking about what happens currently in the justice system, um, talking about what can make it better, um, talking about reversing the ideas of being tough on crime, rather to be right on crime. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a lot about overcriminalization. We talked about uh, the the disparity between um, racial arrest records. We talked about the disparity in sentencing. We talked about mandatory minimums. Uh, we talked about the fact that there is not anything that is really helping to rehabilitate. Um, we talked in the last episode about the four pillars of justice mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, incarceration, um, and but there's very little focus on rehabilitation to making sure that the 95% of people who are in jail or prison, one day they're going to get out. Sure. And at the end of the day, we need to make sure that those people are productive members of society because we cannot continue to lock away people in a cage because we don't like the behavior that they yeah that they they choose do do they have a project page or just go to freedomworks. this is their big deal um they're lobbying um their their focus is having stuff like this happen all over the country they're working with several other groups i know they're working against families against uh, mandatory minimums they're working with the faith and freedom coalition um they're working with traditionally more uh, or more right-leaning think tanks um, and groups that are lobbying, um, but it's their major initiative and has been for the last year or so. And and it was just a and it was an honor to be invited and to participate and to um, hear some of the things that we don't normally hear when we're watching CNN or we're watching the the nightly news. We're too busy with apartment fires and some of the terrible things that are happening in our communities, and we're not talking about what's happening behind the behind bars. Right. So check out FreedomWorks. Uh, Google them. I think it's freedomworks.org. It is. Uh, and thank you to uh, Jason Pye and everybody at FreedomWorks for sharing the last episode, and hopefully they'll share this one as well. Uh, now, we actually are going to have a, an, an event here in Indianapolis around this issue later this month. Yes, July the 28th. All right, July the 28th. We're going to talk to you more about that later. Uh, and it is through America's Future Foundation. Yes, it is. And uh, you can check out the AFF. If you go to the front page of We Are Libertarians, scroll down. There's an AFF Indianapolis link. Click that. Find out more. Uh, we'll have the Facebook event up there soon. So uh, be sure to join us later in the month as we we host a live 
seminar mm-hmm. on on this not a seminar i don't know that sounds boring yeah it's, it's a panel it's discussion. more like show up we'll give you free drinks sure. and uh f- free well, food a, a free drink okay <laughs> calm down chris and then we will uh we will educate you and have a have a little discussion about uh this these very issues that we will be talking about today the one that w- we talked about on episode 162 and 160 uh justice reform is very near and dear to my heart and i think most libertarians hearts uh, if you are bored and you've got nothing to do before we jump into the program, I'm going to plug the house I live in, the documentary on Netflix, one more time. It's not on Netflix anymore. <sighs> well, I was looking for it the other night because I was going to watch it again, and instead yeah. I watched Kids for Cash, All right. which uh, I highly recommend. It's uh, a terrible story, but it's good to know what's happening. On that links page on We Are Libertarians, on the front page, we've got a link to the house I live in. Buy it. Share it with your friends. It's amazing. Uh, and uh, maybe send an email to Netflix and make them put it back. Uh, all right, so so when we last left you on part one of this, in episode 160, uh, we were talking to Darone and Richard about their experiences in prison. We talked about what it's like to get arrested, uh, what it's like to uh, go into the prison system, to, to go through the sentencing phases, and uh, we never really, in that two-hour conversation, got to what it's like to leave the justice system and then get back out into the real world. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today, and I think a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of what has happened over the last uh, few days in and really the, the past year, but you know, the murders of Castile and Sterling have uh, obviously brought this to the front page, and then the assassination of police officers in Dallas— have brought this discussion to the forefront, and we're going to continue that discussion, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I wanted because I think obviously what Castile Castile uh, apparently was stopped over the last couple of years, fifty two times, and so if you are stopped fifty two times and you have a concealed carry and you're a young black man, there's going to be a fifty third time where you get killed. There's just no way around it. There's it's a law of number. It's a law of averages. You know when you were stopped for taillights and speeding and other minor traffic offenses, which police uh, do that because then they can uh, you know if they pull you over for the taillight or if they pull you over for the headlight that's out, then maybe they smell marijuana, maybe they smell something else, and they can get a, a bigger charge, a bigger collar that will then help them with their statistics and help them move up the ranks. Uh, again, a law of perverse, uh, a system of perverse incentives. And you forgot about the revenue generation. The revenue from those ge- tickets. And yeah, exactly. The court costs. And- Here, here's a guy who had uh, Castile has been, uh, he has paid the government ninety six hundred dollars through those fifty two arrests. And no, ju- not fifty two arrests. Or fifty two stops. Yes. Uh, well, technically you're arrested. <laughs> Try and flee from the cops when you're, sure. you're pulled over with the lights behind you. Um, but $9,600, I'm guessing to a guy like Castile, it is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't look like he was a rich guy. <laughs> he worked for the school system right. uh, in the lunchroom. Uh, certainly not a high paying job, certainly not a, uh, well insuranced or well insured job right. as uh, health insurance goes. So $9,600 out of his pocket, taxation is theft. Uh, stolen out of his pocket through minor offenses, and then the 53rd time he paid for, with his life. 
Um, you know, we covered that incident in, in the last episode, so if you want to hear more of our thoughts on that, uh, we will get into it. Um, but should should we start with... Let's start with the exit of the prison system, because I imagine that that will then fold into our discussion about, you know, yes, it will. life on the street as, as a young black male. Uh, just to recap, if you didn't get a chance to listen to one... Uh, 160. Jerome Caldwell, you were in prison for 18 years. Yes. Um, you maintain your innocence. Yes. You were, went into the prison system uh, and were basically railroaded by the police. Yes. You signed a document that you didn't really, you weren't, it's not that you weren't cognizant, it's just that you were just signing it to get home. You yes. were a 19 year old scared kid yes. and uh, then spent 18 years in prison for something that, again, you maintain you did not do. Yes. And, uh, Richard, you have been in and out of prison for a total of 26 years. Yes. Uh, you admit that you did do some of the stuff. Most of it. <laughs> right, most of it. Uh, and you went in... How old were you when you first went into prison? Uh, 18. 18. Yes. So, uh, and how old are you guys now, Richard? I am 56. 56, all right. 41. 41, okay. Uh, so, a good majority of your life has been spent in inside... Uh, the prison system, um, and we talked a lot about the the mental games that the system plays with you. Not just uh, the mental and emotional games that go on with police, with prosecutors, with other inmates inside. And in that episode, we discussed you know growth and and how to handle those things, the, and even down to things like the food. The food is all soy based, which is terrible and destructive to the human body. Uh, soy is uh, responsible for man boobs. That's all. Uh, gentlemen. <laughs> and it makes you very angry and very violent. Right. So, Which I'm sure helps yes. when you're locked up and in prison. Yeah. Um, so let's start, Jerome, with you as uh, you, you are nearing the end of your sentence. Yes. And uh, you were originally put in there... How long was your sentence supposed to be? Uh, 45 years. 45 years, yes. okay. And then how did you get out in 18? Well, back then you do half your time, so I would have had to do 22 and a half. But then when I, I got there, they gave me so many opportunities to try to get out earlier, my college degrees, by getting vocations, by getting just staying out of trouble. Sure. And I accomplished that so they let me out in 18 years instead of 22 years mm -hmm. and now was that a surprise to you to get out earlier considering the age i went in and how it's so terrible in there and i didn't uh, i didn't allow myself to get caught up into the prison life as we call it right it surprised me that i made it out sure and okay guess once i made it out well let's when I was there, they about two weeks before I got out, they put me in some kind of class and said, well, this is your rehabilitation class after 18 years. They, <laughs> they finally me, start rehabilitating you. Yeah. In two weeks, they, they expected me to learn how to make it out here. Right. Once again, after 18 years. So what does the class involve? Mm, how to put a condom on. <laughs> really? Honestly, That's an important lesson. Yeah. How to, I, I won't say do a resume because they, they didn't teach us how to do one, but they 
told us how to do it. But sure. They didn't teach us how to do it. Sure. Now, now, why in college they taught us, and I, I learned that way mm-hmm. because the the person who taught us there, I don't think he knew how to do a resume. Right in the in the rehabilitation yeah. class, yes, okay. and taught us how to not come back, and that's it. They never. Which, which what were the bullet points on that? Stay away from officers. Really? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have no. What they called us have no police contact. Basically. Okay, so you see a police officer. So because the because why? Because you you because you're an ex offender. Which my story about when I got a ticket a month ago, two months ago, and I got stopped, and and the officer came, he got my ID. And then he went back to his car and came back and just talked about my prison life. Oh, I see you just got out of prison. I see this. Never once said, well, you did this. Right. He just started talking about, well, I hope, hope you can make it out here. And I'm like, where, where did this come from? Just, if right. I did something wrong, tell me what I did wrong, then let me go. Mm-hmm. But he just wanted to talk about prison the whole time. That's bizarre. Yes. One of the things I think that feeds into the the no officer contact yeah. is the idea that when you do have contact with an officer, it's because you've done something wrong. Yes. Yes. It does not necessarily reflect the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that has unfortunately invaded the mindset of a lot of America. We mm-hmm. talk about when somebody is questioned, it's like it used to be when someone was arrested. Mm-hmm. When someone is arrested, it's like, we used to talk about somebody who's been convicted. <laughs> when they're convicted, well, it's still the same. Right. It's just a question of how long they're going to be in jail. But we see that today where um, even when the uh, – I'll bring up the FBI uh, investigation of Jared Fogle with regard to the child pornography. Former subway spokesman. Former subway spokesman. You know, they were already talking about the time he was going to be spending in prison – before that investigation was over, mm-hmm. because he had contact with the FBI and there was an investigation. No talk about why they were doing it. Mm-hmm. We were people were just speculating about what was happening and they were estimating how long he was gonna how long he was gonna be in prison and what it was for and that he's clearly a bad person and we're already making the jokes that I can't stand um, with regard to talking about prison. Um, because if we made those same jokes about a woman on a college campus it would be very, it would mm-hmm. have a very different outcome. Right. Um, and so we've seen that change in the way that people talk about justice because it isn't necessarily justice that we're seeking. We're looking to hold someone responsible. Um, and as soon as we have somebody, well, we need to close this case and we've got justice. Congratulations, guys. Right. High fives all around. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that it could have been the wrong person. It could have, doesn't matter that the sentence didn't fit the crime. It doesn't matter that maybe the crime shouldn't be a crime. We are just talking about justice in a very perverse way, and that's closing a case. And, and we touched on that last time. It's, it's proved your innocence. Right. Well, which goes back to his original point that um, when you're pulled over— you're basically considered convicted Absolutely. already. You're, already. You're basically, no matter what wrong. has happened, yep. and and no matter how the stop goes, later on if it's viewed, because he stopped you, you had to be doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's just the pervasive attitude of uh, uh, our community and, and uh, um, a society as a whole. Um, it, you know, if the police stop you, you must be doing something wrong. And now that we have the advent of uh, instant video. Um, and you said something that 
was kind of interesting uh, at the beginning uh, of the cast um, when you said that the the um, the police officers were assassinated, mm-hmm. well, and that the uh, Castile and um, Sterling were murdered. Absolutely, I believe that all of those individuals were assassinated. Mm-hmm. And because we use different wording, um, and I know you didn't mean anything by it, you were just simply speaking, but mm-hmm. a, a lot of times in the media, people will use the harsher words because it was a police officer mm-hmm. as opposed to the citizens don't get that same, and that's what we were talking about earlier, Sure, um, the way things are portrayed and how it's viewed. And, you know, um, I just believe that it's it's so important that we level the playing field and when someone is killed unjustly, it's just that they were killed unjustly, not, mm-hmm. you know, well, this guy was killed, but these people were assassinated. And, you know, making it making it seem like more sinister. And Well, my reasoning for that is that was, let, it was let, intent because the, the gentleman that went and killed the Dallas police officers clearly had intent to kill. True. And I'm not – I don't – know if the police officers in those two cases had the intent to kill, but they definitely committed murder. Uh, but I don't Absolutely. I don't know if their intent... I mean, if you listen in the Castile video, you listen to the police officer's tone of voice, he's absolutely frantic. He's losing... I mean, he's clearly disturbed by the... In, you know, what has happened. Um, so that's why I, I use the distinction, but I do maintain that... There is all of them are wrong. That the law, including the loss um, of the loss of any life, including them sending the robot in to blow him up. Yes, <laughs> that was Good an assassination, and, and that was that you know was well thought out. <laughs> so, right. yeah, and unfortunately, that's it's an unpopular position to call for due process for someone who has been involved in. A premeditated murder, like like Christopher Dorner, who was the former LAPD cop who went and killed a bunch of LAPD cops, and then he was found at Great Bear Lake, and then they they they, they, they just, just torched the cabin. They torched that he was the in. cabin that he was in. It didn't. He never got a trial. Oh, he wow. he was an ex ex uh, LAPD officer, black officer, who went around and he was mentally ill, and he went and well, he was he, also retaliating for perceived injustice with yeah. regard to his release from the police department as well. So, and, and instead of capturing him, they had the cabin surrounded. They just lit the cabin on fire. <laughs> it's about two or three years ago. I remember that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, you, the lack of due process afforded to a cop killer is is an issue in my mind. I mean, I would rather know why. I don't know the name of the Dallas shooter. I'm not going to learn it. I'm not going to mention it here. I'm not going to honor anybody who commits mass killings uh, on our program. But I do think that we need to understand why people like this do what they do. You know, There's it, value in knowing why. Right. And just sending in a robot and blowing him up doesn't, doesn't help us avoid the next instance of this sort of thing. Well, I mean, you, you think of all of the um, serial killers that they have captured and they wanted to get into the minds of the serial killer to find out, mm-hmm. you know, why did you do these things? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, it makes you wonder. Yeah. So as you, as you exit mm-hmm. you, what is the process for being released from prison? Mm-hmm. I just go in, and it's a counselor. I think everyone's assigned a counselor. Mm-hmm. 
and you go in and talk to them and just fill out a whole bunch of release papers. Mm-hmm. And basically that's it. You just you fill out these papers. They ask you who's coming to get you and go see your parole officer. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Okay, so then what I think there's uh, there's different. You were on house arrest. There's parole. parole yes. There's probation. probation. Yes. What are the differences between some of those things? Well, well, me, I got out a little earlier than the 18 years. Well, I was supposed to do 18 and a half years. Well, they only made me do 18 and put the other half on house arrest. Okay. And house arrest, I was uh, I was on GPS where they knew my every move. I had a monitor on my ankle, mm-hmm. and I had to stay at my house and, and, unless I went to work or went to church or looked for a job. Right. Other than I just had to stay in the house for six months. And you were allowed two hours a day to go look for a job? Yes. Okay. Well, he, he kind of cut it down to an hour and a half. I don't know why. He never told me. Hmm. And I was happy just to get out for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't complain. And then and then once and since, since I wasn't officially released out of prison yet, I didn't start parole until my my house arrest time was, was over. over. Okay. And so once I which I'm off parole this month. Congratulations. <laughs> so, so what is the difference between parole and probation? I've never been on probation. Very so different. Um, the two are very different. Um, actually, parole um, is less invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, parole just says, come in once a month, make sure that you know you talk to us, let, let us know what you're doing, let us know where you've been looking for employment, that type of thing. Probation, um, you have to call the drug hotline every day. Um, I think we talked about that a little bit. Um, you have to do um, random drug testing. Um, so what do you call the drug hotline and go, hey, haven't done drugs today? No, what you do <laughs> is you dial the number, um, and it will tell you whether you're scheduled for a drop or not. Ah, okay. And gotcha. so every day you have to call because you never know when they're going to say, you are scheduled for a drop on this date at this time, da 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 If you don't call and you're scheduled, then you violated your probation, the conditions Mm. of your probation. And then of course you go through back through into the system. Um, You know, you go before the judge, you know, we want to know why you didn't, you know, do what you were supposed to do. And usually it it either lands you back in prison or um, you're uh, uh, given a warning of some kind to say, if this happens again, you're immediately going back to the DOC. Mm. So um, uh, also um, as far as being released, um, we were put into um, a reentry class, mm-hmm. okay? Because you know that's the big watchword now, reentry. Um, but basically, what they do is they they show you a video. Um, in that room, however, um, usually on um, countertops and desks that are that fill the room, there are brochures and pamphlets for Indiana Hip 2.0. Um, you know, a lot of the resources that may be out here in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, they just provide you with paperwork that you can pick up. But they don't consider that some people can't read and write. HIP is uh, health insurance Health plan. insurance, absolutely. Yeah. So for our non, um, non-in-state people. Yeah, and, uh, uh, right. you know, there are several different things to choose from. Um, so, you know, you really need someone to kind of, if you if you don't know, if you're not aware, if you can't read, you know, there are a lot of issues. Um, if you have mental health issues, which a lot of people do, um, you really need some type of one-on-one guidance through this mm-hmm. uh, to, to understand the information. Because if you don't, you're just walking out of there with a little 
booklet of the things that you picked up, you know, bus routes, that type of thing. Uh, and then you're out. Of course, the first thing that you have to do is report to your probation officer. I had probation. I didn't have parole. Um, two years probation, mm -hmm. um, which I completed in February of, la of this year. Um, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Probation was, was, was a lot harder than the last six months of my sentence in prison. You know, I mean, because it's out here, it's different. It's always um, you're looking over your shoulder, wondering, are you about to go back to prison? Mm. And that's the that's the it's almost like you're walking on landmines and you have to be very careful of where you step. Uh, every um, uh, opportunity that you have or, you know, uh, to find employment, you better be looking for it, because if you don't, when you are scheduled to see it and when you first come home, you have to see your probation officer once a week mm -hmm. as well as calling every day for the judge hotline. So it's like, you know, they have a, a tight leash on you. Um, after your first 30 days, uh, 30 to 45 days, then it becomes uh, twice to two, to two to three times a month. Then after 90 more days, it becomes twice a month. And then um, after that, it becomes like maybe once a month. Uh, mine, but that's based upon what type of crime and that type of thing as well. Mm -hmm. Because of my criminal history was so bad, um, I had to go twice. I was I was there once every two weeks, uh, all the way through to the end. Mm -hmm. They never gave me that limited. Whereas I could call once a month and everything was fine, and yeah. you know, um, it, it was difficult. And and you never. You never realize it. You, you never realize that you have a leash on you until you have a leash on you. Sure. You know, um, you never really understand how limited your movements are, how limited, you know, just basically going through the day is. And, and when you have someone watching over you to say, well, wait a minute. No, you can't do that. You know, what, why are you doing that? And the sad thing is, is as I was progressing, because, you know, um, when I first came home, um, I got a job with I was blessed I got a, a job with um, micro metals as a welder. Mm -hmm. I went to a little welding class and, and they hooked me up, you know, um, started a MIG welding and, and was doing really well. I was making $18 an hour, which to me, that was like, ooh, yeah. I'm making a lot of money. Sure. Especially going from 25 cents, a, you know, a day, you right. know what I mean? So um, I thought I was, you know, living the dream. And four months later, uh, they called us in on a Sunday. Never forget it. It was uh, um, like the week before Thanksgiving. And they said, um, because we worked, we worked um, on the weekends uh, as opposed to working during the weekend. So we, had, we, was, we were able to get a lot of hours in. And they just basically said, well, your shift is being discontinued. Mm. No warning, no nothing. You know, you'll get your check and that's it. You know, and so... Someone who has come from absolute zero making money and all the hoops that I had to jump through in order to try and get a, a job and to finally find a decent job to now, my biggest worry and fear was not the fact that I lost the money that I was earning. It was going back to my probation officer saying I lost my job. Right. I was more afraid of that than going home to tell my fiance that, Hey, you know, I lost my job because I know she's been sticking with me for 23 years. So sure. she ain't going nowhere. You know right. what I mean? It's just another 
hoop or hurdle that we have to jump over. But right. to go back and say that to my probation officer was a big deal. Right. What are the costs that that I mean, you were immediately given by the justice system when you leave? I mean, I'm sure you have to pay for the the ankle, the ankle bracelet. bracelet. Right. Yeah. What are some of the costs that you that you face? Well, when I went in there to get it on, they didn't tell me any price. And then I went home. Then my first visit there, he told me I owed him $1,000. So I asked him, how am I going to pay that? I don't have a job. I just got out of prison after doing so many years. How am I going to pay it? Well, you, you got six months to come up with it. And if you don't, it, you, you have bad credit. Right. Cause we will report it to the credit, credit bureau. So I'm like, I'm, I don't know what to do. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm out there. I'm trying to look for a job. I'm not getting one. Right. Because I, I got an ankle bracelet on that. And to me, that was a stopper there because if they knew who I was, they, they, they might give me a chance. But once they see that, um, no, we don't want him right now. And so I, for a long time, I still didn't pay not one payment on that. So now I'm thinking, man, I'm going to have bad credit. I just got out. I don't. I, I really didn't know what credit yeah, was. Yeah, do you really even <laughs> yeah. have a concept of yeah. what that might mean or mean yeah. or not? And so I found finally got a job through Rupert's Kids. Mm-hmm. And we kind of dealt with the issue of, of the court costs and all that. And then after that, I've just, you know, I was at Rupert's Kids doing well, I hope, I thought I was. And then one day I said, hey, I think I can, I can go out there and try to get an, another job now. I think I achieved what I needed to achieve and learned what I needed to learn at Rupert's Kids. So I started going out, I kept getting turned down, kept getting turned down over and over. So I just got discouraged, like, I don't want to be here anymore, but I have to work. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to keep looking, keep looking. Then I, I landed Micro Metal. Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, through a temporary service. Mm-hmm. And I worked there, and after my 90 days, they loved me. They wanted to hire me. Do you have a felony? Yes, I do. Well, that may stop you. Mm. So we fought me. I stayed there longer and longer. Then they called me up and said, you know what? We're going to hire you anyway. You're a hard worker. Yeah. So I got, got blessed that way. And then at Michael Metal, I started my other job as a part-time. And then they called me in one day and said, we're going to make you full-time. You work hard. And to me saying this, it just, some people come out of prison, don't get a chance to prove that, that they are hard workers and they're not, bad people because we came out of prison. Right. And then a lot of employers don't want to see that. To me, they just don't want someone in, in, in their establishment that has a record because... Or they don't want, you know, the... You've got an ankle bracelet, yeah, you violate... Stigma. Yeah. Then you're then you're gone. Yeah. You you go back and then they've tr- put time and training yeah. into somebody that, right. you know, yeah. could be gone at any moment. Well, and the other thing that I noticed as somebody who worked uh, HR mm-hmm. previously in a previous career right there are things that you have to fill out as the employer Mm -hmm. of a felon who's going who has probation who has parole that says yes they were here at work yes they came to look for a job so there's extra paperwork just when you meet for an interview Mm -hmm. if you do get an interview then when you do hire them on you're you're taxing their employer not taxing in a tax money way but taxing them in a time in a time and effort way just for the simple fact that they hired somebody well, and because and they they're going to have somebody. to pay, they're going to have to pay some employee to do that work right to basically 
follow you mm-hmm. to, to see that they're following you and making sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do, uh, as well as the bonding situation. They may have a situation where you're bonded and that type of thing. So definitely it's extra paperwork and, and extra man hours. But my question is, when do it stop? I, I, I do understand it. I mean, at the beginning, if you're on parole, probation, and they have to do all this, but once the person that's an ex-felon that's not on this anymore, when do it stop? Well, it basically, usually it stops once you're off of paper. Yeah. Um, and and uh, because then there's no one tracking you anymore. Yeah. Right. So I didn't have that situation because usually what happened was they went back to jail. Okay. Mm. Before they were done, they would just not show up right. one day. And right. I mean, we're talking a minimum wage job at a movie theater. You're not, you know. You're not expecting that you're going to be able to go back, and we didn't do background checks, but we did know when somebody had, you know, when after they got the job and they presented us with the paperwork that we had to fill out for their probation or parole officer, um, and we were filling it out and we were keeping up with them, and then all of a sudden they would just not show up again. I, but, and know, the only assumption that we could make was, well, they went back to jail or yeah. they hated the job and did something else. And, and I'd like to also try to um, appeal to, I think, Daron's point as well as that, People are under the assumption that when you come out of prison that you're going to go back to being lazy and not want to do anything. Prisoners are people who ex-offenders are probably some of the best people that you can employ. They are at a position in life where um, usually if they have gone through the hardships uh, of prison, they've learned something. Mm -hmm. Um, we may not say that they've turned their lives around and that they're completely wonderful people now, whatever, but they've learned something. Um, through You learn the most through a, any kind of adversity. Adversity, absolutely. Yeah. And I just think that it's important that people realize that the loyalty that people have um, with those who give them a chance is a big deal. Sure. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, personally, um, I do a lot of things in the community, a whole lot of things. But at night, I work as a janitor. Mm-hmm. The reason that I work as a janitor still is because they were the ones that gave me the first opportunity sure. when I came home. When no one else would hire me, this little cleaning company said, we'll give you a part-time job, three hours a night, you know, just to help you get on your feet. Mm-hmm. And I've stayed with them for almost two years now just because they gave me an opportunity. Yeah even though I've grown past the point of needing the type of money that they're giving me. Uh, the, the mindset that I hear from the two of you coming out of prison um, is different than the mindset that I have towards a career, where I look at it from a position of, you know, well, I, I can do whatever I want. I can achieve whatever I want. Right. I can, you know, I'm, I'm my own... Good point. I'm my own... Ma- where almost it's like... You guys are saying the I'm not in control. I've got right. there's there's right. some the society is in control of me, and I've kind of got to go along to get along. I'm not saying th- that it's a low self esteem thing. I'm saying that's kind of how it is. It's a men, it's a mentality you know? adjustment because I'm getting there. I'm getting to the point where now um, because of what I'm doing in the community and being involved in a lot of um, activism and that type of thing, mm-hmm. I'm beginning to understand that. Um, that the world is my oyster yeah, mentality. You're, you're a master of your own future um, as opposed exactly. to a victim of your circumstance. Right, and um, I think that um, 
that fear that we have of returning to um, incarceration mm -hmm. keeps us limited in our thinking as far as going out here and obtaining certain types of employment. Right. Um, you know, oh man, you know, uh, I don't really have a GED. I didn't graduate from high school. Or I don't have this or I don't have that. Um, uh, fortunately, you know, um, like Daron and myself, we were there at a time when college was still being offered. Um, uh, GEDs are, are still, of course, being offered. Um, they have voc vocational uh, training in, in prison. And so uh, on our way out, we were able to uh, secure um, avenues of employment, for employment. Um, I know you have a, a degree or two. Mm -hmm. I, I have two degrees. Um, was unable to complete the bachelor's. Um, got but I'm four shorts short, four credits short of my bachelor's degree, um, and and have a couple of associate's degrees. But by the way, I dropped out of college. Oh wow! <laughs> so, so <laughs> and you're you doing so well. Yeah, you know, you look, at, you look at society and you go, all right, well, these these guys have more, way more college degrees than Chris Spangle does. Well, you know? but, but and hey, he's the host of a very successful, it's very the successful, the most successful libertarian <laughs> podcast in, Indi in Indiana. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so, um. So, so all told, what does so you've got these court costs, and I've heard Rupert talk about it a hundred times. Yeah. I mean, it's you get out and you've got you've got a hundred bucks to the courts, so you've got a hundred and fifty for the ankle brace, so you've got a thousand dollars for this, got a, you know, and so many guys go back because it's hard to find employment, and so you just go back to the old way of coping, which yeah. is I'm going to go steal, I'm going to go, you know, and that's and that's because I'm not going back to prison, so I might as well go steal, and then they, you know, they get caught. Eighty five percent of the people who return to prison return to prison for TRVs. Meaning, and what a TRV is is a technical rule violation. Hmm. Um, technical rule violations are you missed, you had a dirty drop, or you missed nothing. They didn't commit another crime. Right. They just basically didn't go by the rules of probation, mm -hmm. parole, the ankle bracelet, or whatever. Sure. And so basically they're now sent, and this is 85% of the people who return. So you're saying only 15% of the people are actually committing new crimes. And so that just tells you that it's a systematic thing where it's just a, a revolving door. Um, we haven't even mentioned um, if you have um, anger management classes, you know, because when you go into prison and usually when you come out, they're saying, well, you uh, there's somebody that decides, well, this person needs anger management. You might talk to me for 10 minutes. Well, I think you need anger management. Well, that costs and you're immediately assessing that cost to me. I have no no decision, uh, you know, in that process when you say, well, he needs anger management because you don't like the way I answered a question or sure. whatever, whatever, you know. And, and so when you assign those things to me, you're also assigning costs that comes with them. Right. Well, so, and you, to, to further that, uh, my sister um, had a run-in with the law and did a pretrial diversion program that allowed her to not spend any time in jail. But one of the conditions that had absolutely nothing to do with why she was arrested was that she take uh, – that she um, – be a, yeah, she's participating in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it had absolutely nothing to do with what she was arrested for. She didn't have a problem with alcohol. In fact, she met people there that drank and <laughs> got her more into a partying lifestyle. Oh, okay. And so it ended up that it wasn't good for wasn't her, beneficial. but she still had to go through it for six months, which is an interesting thing to see that, you know, you have somebody that decides, well, you need to go to AA. Mm -hmm. 
but you don't have an alcohol problem. They just want you to go. They want to have a rule. And it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder the connection of it all Mm -hmm. of this person is telling me that I have an anger management issue. How are you connected to the people who are that, that are, are, are asking me for money for this anger management issue? Sure. You know, um, they're just, there's just such a connection um, with the DOC, the department of corrections. And and I really hate that term, the department of corrections, because Mm -hmm. they're not correcting anything. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And they, they won't even call it the department of rehabilitation because they're not rehabilitating anything or anyone. Well, no, they they do two weeks at the end where they tell you how to wrap your Jimmy. Exactly. (laughs) You know what I mean? And uh, uh, so don't go procreate and and have any more people like you. Right. And you know what I mean? It's like, really? So, yeah. I mean, did you not know how to use a condom before you went into jail, Daron? <laughs> like, I didn't think so. <laughs> but they're doing the world a favor because we're not going to create another Daron. Right. Uh, yeah, that that sounds very uh, yeah. Nazi-like. Yeah, I mean, David Simon in that in the house I live in, there's a quote, and I've extracted it and put it on our Facebook page in the videos, and we are libertarians, where he basically talks about, you know, let's let's just be honest. Let's Let's say what this is. The bottom 15%, the factories are closed, the, the, the mills are closed, the fabric mills are closed in the south. You know, we, we just have, we have destroyed economies, and for the bottom 15%, we've just got no jobs for them. So let's, let's pass stringent drug laws, and let's just decide, we'll just warehouse them. We'll just warehouse the bottom 15%, and then... We'll create drug laws that then create a system, and we'll monetize this whole system. We'll make money off of the warehousing of this bottom 15%. And we'll, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to the communities. It doesn't matter what happens to these individual lives. It doesn't matter what happens to our society at large. You know, and at that point, you might as well just say, kill the poor. Because that's pretty much where we're at. What's happening, yes. And the bottom 15% we are making money off of the bottom 15% because we just don't have we we things like nafta and other government interventions into the free market we've destroyed uh entire industries and so you know in lower income areas not just in like downtown detroit or crown hill here in indianapolis mm-hmm. You know, in Scottsville, Indiana, you know, where the, the Scott County, where the, right. the heroin, heroin epidemic, epidemic. Mm-hmm. you go travel the majority of this state, and the, the majority of this state in Indiana is poor rural people. And the fastest growing number, uh, the fastest growing population in prisons and in drug rehab is white women. Mm. And it's because of prescription drug mills. Right. Right. And now heroin, because people have gone to that, because you, you, you hurt your back, and then you get hooked on pain pills, and you get all that, you know, so... And then they make it harder to get the pain pills, so it, and they make it more expensive to get them, because they see now the problem that they've created, so they right. have to then intervene once again to reform this, that, or the other, and so you drive it further underground. So instead of somebody going to a legit doctor who writes a prescription... Then you send them to a pill mill, which has a doctor who's a little shady, but he's going to write you the prescription anyway. Well, then you take steps to shut that down. So now what you're finding is that you have to drive to Kentucky or you have to drive to Illinois or you have to drive to Ohio to get your fix. But then even they're cracking down on things. So then you find that it's actually just easier to go to the hard drugs that are available on the street instead of trying to follow the laws as they are. Yeah. And when you drive it underground, you 
your local drug dealer cannot call the police to say, hey, there's a guy who's who's on my corner stealing my business. Right. The the local drug dealer does not cannot settle a business dispute in a court of law. Right. They cannot file a lawsuit. So you introduce violence into that black market. You introduce violence into people into people's lives that have not been a part of it because you have reformed them from one way of life to another way of life to another way of life and now yeah. you've driven them into a life of crime because you're trying to help them right and the pharmaceutical companies are the new drug dealers oh yes they uh, are and 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 to speak to 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 Chris's point um uh, about um the the institutions of um incarceration um and the educational system um unfortunately there's so much there's so much money being made by privatizing the prison system that it would only take a fraction of that monies that are being generated to keep our schools open. Sure. You know, to keep, you know, so to keep those uh, factories flourishing and to have jobs for people and those type of things. And it's just amazing that um, the greed has become so overwhelming that, um, you know, it's not enough. You know, I, I watch these these NBA players getting $140 million, you know, just to run up and down the court and shoot a basketball. You know, these entertainers, you know, they make so much money. And it's like, but we don't have money for our, for our schools and our neighborhoods and, and this, that. You know, I mean, we've got money to go after uh, Jeff Teague and, and, and Paul George and all of these people here on the Pacers organizations, you know, but yet... Our schools are closing around us. Our businesses are closing around us. We're failing as a community all around us, but we've got this money to go in our pocket and pay this person because we, but it's our fault because we continue to frequent places like um, Lucas Oil Stadium, (laughs) you know, just because we go for the entertainment. Yeah, well, and that's why libertarians would argue that, you know, you can pay a basketball player $140 because that's private versus public with schools right. and that's why it's failing right, right, and right. so you get this institutional bureaucracy that encourages failure although uh sports teams in indianapolis are no longer necessarily private. and across the country because yeah. they're being subsidized through the stadiums that they build and the arenas that they build that the taxpayers pay for right and taxpayers are on right the hook for even right. after they're destroyed the right. rca dump so you have uh you you crack down on marijuana in the 60s so then that rises uh, cocaine in the 70s then that gives rise to crack in the 80s then that gives rise to meth in the 90s and 2010s and then you know then it becomes pain pills and now it's heroin again i mean heroin has come back yeah because, because it's, of the it's pain cheaper pill than issue. pills yeah, right. it's, it's and, all opiates and we're actually seeing now and i saw a report i haven't had a chance to read the entire thing but the prescription drugs are now the cause of more deaths than heroin mm. and cocaine combined. Yeah. I believe that. Um, so I want to read a quote from John Ehrlichman, who was the White House Domestic Affairs Advisor during the Nixon administration. <laughs> uh, Ehrlichman and Haldeman were the main advisors to Richard Nixon. And this is an absolutely true quote, quote from the 90s that he gave to uh, someone. You can look it up if you want. Share it. It's on our Facebook page. Uh, I posted it July 8th, July 9th. On our Facebook page. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal, illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. 
We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So here's a former advisor to the president who sat in the Oval Office and in the 90s is admitting to destroying leftists and black communities to win an election in 1972. And that continued with Just Say No and Nancy Reagan and Tough on Crime and then the Clintons with the crime bill in the 90s. And then, you know, after 9-11, we, we were all conditioned to say, all right, give us more. Give us let's militarize the police forces. Let's um, let's build a spying apparatus. Let's, uh, you know, let's set uh, up a video game like <laughs> right. display where we can go and kill brown people halfway across the world just because of who they're related to. Exactly right. So we we have to roll back what. So if a politician can create this, mm-hmm. then a politician can destroy it. If people go along with that. If people see the truth and start to hear words like that and hear that, oh, wow, Nixon was trying to destroy black people. He he wanted to make it illegal to be black. And so he and it's because of the summer of 69. So in the summer of 69, there were a lot of riots. Mm -hmm. 68, 69, 70. There was a ton of violence in the 70s and riots. Uh, Reason just posted an article on that which we reposted at our Facebook page. It was a much more violent time. I mean, yeah, I was a kid when the when the riots happened in LA, you know, Rodney King and then the trucker Denny, he got pulled out and beaten. I mean, the LA riots were were massive. Um and you know, Baltimore and Ferguson didn't have anything on what happened in LA. And it all of that was all of this writing was, well, we don't condone rioting because it is the destruction of private property for usually people who have nothing to do with the system. Mm. Uh, There is an understanding that when a people feel occupied, when a people feel oppressed, when a people feel injustice, there will be protests. There will be movements against that. There will be violence because people, you know, some people don't have the emotional stability, I mean, i.e. Maya, to handle uh, the the proper way to deal with things, which is nonviolence, which is, you know, doing doing what Richard is doing, building coalitions locally to influence local legislators, local uh, local people through hearts and minds. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to force anybody to do anything. We want you to hear Daron and Richard's story and say, this is happening. Mm. You need to care. And it just because it isn't happening to you, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't care. You know, if there were a podcast in 1939 on a German, on the German internet, and Jews were brought onto the show and were saying, listen, this is what's happening in the ghettos. This is the attitude towards the Jews by our government. This is a systemic problem. This is institutional racism meant to destroy a race of people. And every bit of it was legal. And every bit of it was legal and patriotic. And encouraged. That's what's happening. We have every single day a young black male, every two days, a young black male is killed by a police officer. And in the stories of Richard and Daron, you hear why and how. Because the system has been built into something that, I said it on last episode, I I heard it from um, a CNN commentator who 
just wrote a book about the police killings, and I can't think of a young black black uh, commentator, Mark something. But he just basically said, from the second that black bodies hit the American soil, American, the state, the governments of America have been trying to destroy those black bodies. And this rash of shootings by police towards young black males is not new. This is an old fight. It's just we're now seeing it with video cameras. And the silent majority, i.e. white people, are now going, holy shit, this is being done in our name. And I think that if you are listening, you need to take an active role in being a leader in your community as a libertarian who cares about freedom and liberty for every individual and every human being and take a stand. And tell your local government, I believe in the dignity of the individual. I believe in the human rights of individuals. And we aren't going to stand for this anymore. So if it means putting body cameras on every police officer that cannot be shut off, because in the case of Sterling, they had body cameras, but somehow those body cameras didn't, they weren't running. When no, they, were, they got they were jarred. Dislodged. Yes, that was the word they used, which dislodged. Is, which is interesting, because I've seen GoPro cameras on the top of, Yes. Guys that are doing crazy motorcycle stunts, right. and Never they're moved. surprised to be alive right. when that stunt is over, when something bad happens, still because filming. that's typically <laughs> when we see those videos, but they're still filming. Yeah. Yeah, so, so body cameras, uh, and we as citizens need to use the camera that is in our pocket at all times the second you get pulled over, white, black, Hispanic, whatever, you turn on Facebook Live, and you, you don't load it onto your phone. You load it onto a cloud service like Facebook Live right because then they can't delete the footage. Uh, Chris, I'd, I'd also like to add, um, when you say that there are two um, black young men killed every day by the police, um, systemically, um, the number is so much larger mm-hmm. because... That, those are people who actually die and expire. Sure. But you also kill us spiritually, especially people like Daron and myself, uh, when you incarcerate us, and then our mental health of coming back, well, like we were discussing earlier, um, you have the world as your oyster. You see it, and mm-hmm. we see it completely differently because our spirits have been crushed for so long that we're not able to function the same way people who have never been incarcerated. So once we uh, uh, have interaction with the police and then we end up in the system, then now our um, understanding of what we're able to achieve changes. And so basically you kill us spiritually as well. So um, that number of just, you know, two every day is, I mean, because there's countless people out here who no longer uh, see a vibrant life ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Because of the experiences, the things that they've gone through on a daily basis. And so now it's like, wow, you know, um, I've lost hope. You know what I mean? And um, people like Daron and myself are rare. We are rarities because throughout all the time that we've done uh, being incarcerated, our hope never changed. We always felt like at some point we would be able to get back out here. Mm-hmm. We're not completely normal as of yet. However, like I said earlier, I'm getting a lot better at my vision of what's possible. Um, and, and that's why uh, uh, what I share with you about what we're trying to do in the community and that type of thing. 
Um, uh, and, and what I'd also like to say is that you know there are so many um, young men out here uh, saying, well, I can't get a job, and, and there are so many doors being closed in my face. If you're an ex-offender who uh, is now being released, there are jobs out here, mm-hmm. okay? Um, there are jobs. I hear about jobs all the time. I constantly am on the phone calling people and connecting people with jobs. There are people out here willing to hire ex-offenders because that stigma is changing as far as they're, they're, they're called returning citizens now, no longer calling them ex-offenders because they're trying to remove the stigma of you know not being employable. Um, if you really want to do better, you can do better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of you have to... Um, you have to shake off that cloud, that black cloud of ugliness. And, and there again, you know, it's a black cloud of ugliness. Um, but that cloud of ugliness that says that you can't make it, that you can't do it because of what you've gone through and because of that, that label that's on you. And it's just not true. If you come out here and you put your head to the grindstone, it may not take off and happen overnight. But if you just keep plugging, the bottom line is there are people who will give you opportunities such as the Libertarian Party. I mean, I really believe that um, there are so many people out here who care um, that it is impossible to say that you can't. Sure. So I want to I want to jump back to something when he was talking about and, and you were talking about the, the two young black men killed every day. We're also discounting by not mentioning the disruption you mentioned in episode 160, the, the trauma that takes yes. place yes. growing up. How traumatic is it to see the male role model in your life dragged away in handcuffs? Sure. Constantly. How traumatic is it to see the male role model in your life when you're four years old sitting in the backseat of a car? Maybe maybe it's not your dad, but Philandro Castro Castile had a four-year-old in the backseat of the car, and he was shot four times by a police officer right in front of that that little girl. And then she was the one having to comfort her mother, her mother at four absolutely. years old. Right. That is a... And so we're talking about... From we, an emotional standpoint, that is a massive codependent that has just been created that has a lot... lot as a, a massive codependent myself, it's a long road to recovery from that little moment that that girl just went, and, went through. And we talk about... And you see the other things that are happening in the community because of a lack of economic prosperity. There's endorsement of economic policy that shuts that door to prosperity to a lot of the communities that are affected that we're talking about. And so you have that already working against you. You're starting to see that the male role models in your life and now some female role models in your life are being carted away, and locked in a cage for years and years and years and years. And you might get to see them through the glass every once in a while. We're seeing their deaths happening in front of these children. What are we doing emotionally, psychologically, and mentally to these kids that they're not even cognizant of what's actually happening in the world? They only know what they've seen in their microcosm. Yeah, and, and is she going to grow up hating the police? <clears throat> she might. You know, um, that it's, it's a scary concept because, what, are, like you said, what are we creating um, just uh, by those type of situations. It's very similar to the, uh, the conditions that we create when we are drone striking people on halfway across the world. Yep, we absolutely. are the biggest recruiters for terrorism. You take a look at what's happening in, in the police versus black community. If we're going to have that dichotomy in that war, 
you're recruiting more people to hate the police in the same way that our foreign policy is recor- is recruiting more terrorists to hate America. And let's let's be really frank. I mean, we kind of talked about a little bit about this before you guys got here. Say there's 100 murders a year in Indianapolis. 80% of it is black on black crime. Right. I mean, the culturally there's a problem, would you say? Yes, yes, I would say. Uh, yeah, and and you know, I I and that is what I feel needs to be first addressed as far as a black man. Um, I I honestly feel that because um, you're more likely as a black man to be killed by another black man than a police officer. than the police officer, right. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think that we the reason that is is because um, we have become so val- devalued by every other race because we don't value our own. Um, you know. When you get to the place where, um, oh, well, I shot John and he was another black guy and nothing happens. There's no recourse. The police are not kicking in everybody's door in order to find out who did it. You get to the place where it's like, oh. Hopefully so they wouldn't I, be kicking in doors to find people. Right. They had an actual reason to kick down the door. Well, but, 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 but to say to that extent, True. when you say that, if I killed a white man, oh. they would kick doors in. And to find out, we are going to find out Mm -hmm. who did this. Absolutely. Um, But because it's a black-on-black crime, no one really cares. And so, therefore, when you you get to the place where that's the standard, you know, we as a race have to recognize, okay, this is not everyone else's problem. This is our problem. We have to start at home to say we need to stop killing each other. We need to stop robbing each other. What is it that makes me feel like, I can go and shoot Darone and it's all right. Mm-hmm. But I hesitate to pull the trigger because you're white. Mm-hmm. Because we know that I'll probably get away with it if I kill him. There'll be more uh, search and, and, you know what I mean, more intensive uh, scrutiny if I kill a white man. Well, and to be quite honest, if you're in a neighborhood where Darone lives and you kill him, People probably aren't going to talk to the police. There you go. You come here. My neighbors are all going to. Well, it was a, it was well a, I saw this black guy on the, <laughs> on the porch, and I know that there's his car right over there. And yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. And so if you want justice, then the community and the police have to find a way to start working together. And the Stop Snitching Movement, I think, is a, is a real problem that, that curtails justice. Uh, okay. Here's where we're gonna kind of disagree a little bit. You're, you're more than welcome. I to am. I am. I am. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fight you. I you, believe. <laughs> listen to you. I believe. Whatever you say, I believe sir. what you're saying uh, has some validity. However, we had a we had a really interesting discussion um, uh, yesterday, uh, me and some colleagues, and uh, we were talking about um, how other people seem to uh, choose our leaders for us. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone, uh, how do I do that? I don't because I don't want to put anybody's name out there. Um, but there are s- some organizations out there that are the face of the mm-hmm. black community. Sure, sure. Okay, um, even to the point of, uh, yeah, I will say the, our deputy mayor. Mm-hmm. Okay, I do not agree. I honestly believe that there was a reason that they separated church and state. Okay, and I do not believe that a person who is a minister or pastor of a church should be our deputy mayor. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, because what the police department has done basically is to take our 
our so self-proclaimed leaders, and now they've basically made them um, extensions of the police, mm-hmm. and they're making the congregations confidential informants. Now, do I believe that the community needs to step up and say something when a child is killed and that type of thing? Absolutely. So don't 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 think that I'm saying this is about a snitching thing because you have to understand the word snitching and what it really means. Okay. When you when you snitch on someone, that means that the person that you're telling on has some type of um connection to you. In other words, you're biting the hand that feeds you. Gotcha. Okay? That's snitching. If you kill a young child, if you rape a grandmother, if you that's not snitching. That's getting some this eradicating your community of a piece of crap. Right. Okay. And so uh, you know, we have to define and understand the difference. Um and our young people, unfortunately, all they know is what they see on TV. All they know is what they see through the social media. And we've got to get these young people to understand that uh, it's not about uh, prison ain't cool no more. There's nothing cool about going to prison. Um, snitching, you know, uh, snitching is what snitching is. But the bottom line is when you are giving, providing information to eradicate your community of someone that you don't even want, just like I talked about when I was here before, I understand that there are people who are need to be incarcerated uh, because I slept next to them. I ate with them every day. I understand that there are people who don't need to see the streets anymore because this is a vile, truly, you know, uh, unrehabilitatable person. Right. You know what I mean? But um, I just think that we really need to understand that um, when we talk about um, our leadership and, and who's uh, representing our, our uh, communities, we need to make sure that um, it's someone that the community has endorsed, not someone that the police department has endorsed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really happening. I want to I add something, a little bit of nuance to what you just described with regard to snitching and talking. Daron, how, how uh, likely would you be to just talk to the police if you knew something, based on your prior experience? Quickly now. Now, but knowing what you've been through in your life, you think about your first encounter. Mm-hmm. Is that something that makes you apt to want to talk? Oh, I, uh, okay. I, yeah, I see yeah. exactly where he is yeah. because you because, you have to be hesitant because I, because I would have yeah. answered the question completely different. And the only reason I would have answered it differently is because. I understand how things can be twisted. Yes. And and, and that's as with mean. your signing of the whatever. That's, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. I know that Daron has a very different situation today than the day he walked out of jail. And right. Because right that... now, Daron is, is a father figure. Right, right. To two wonderful girls and a little boy. And so, and not to mention his, his daughter and grandchildren. Yes, yes. So, but beyond that, we also have the problem of not being able to trust that what you say is going to be well represented in the way that it is received. We see that from a civil liberties perspective Mm -hmm. and we talk about not talking to the police. You have lawyers that tell you do not talk to the police. First thing they tell you in the, in the class stays, no police contact. contact. So we have to figure out the nuance of the position where we are actually helping, and it, it, a lot of it comes back to whether or not we're going to outsource responsibility. Because mm-hmm. we can take responsibility and say, I know that this person did this, 
and that is a they aggress against this person, and I want to make sure that they pay for that justice is served. Not necessarily that they pay, but justice is served for the victim of their crime. But we have to figure out the nuance because we have so many people who go in with that mindset that end up wearing silver bracelets there you go. and walked into a courtroom, and they then somehow become a part of it. Right. If And if they weren't, someone in their family was. You're right. exactly right. right. You, but the thing is, the scary part is, is, okay, you're admitting that I saw this happen. Yes. And you've just painted a target on your However, head. if they connect me to that individual in any way, it becomes I was part of the conspiracy because this happened. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if I like if someone else if I said, "Well, you know what? Derone did this and I saw him do it." Well, the next thing is, Why how do you, you know Derone? Right. right. And Why how close are you? Absolutely. What yeah. were you doing right. at this place so at this now, time? They have Two suspects, yes, as, as opposed to someone telling on someone. And right. so that's part of the systemic issue that we see with the lack of respect for civil liberties. Mm-hmm. Because we have to think about it in a way, it, it always comes back to looking out for number one. You always have to look out for yourself. Sure. Before you can, because you have to make sure that you are taken care of before you take care of others. Mm-hmm. Before you work within the, before you work to better the community, you have to make sure that you're in a good place. But that's what. But that's also the very same mindset that is killing the black community because we've gotten to the point where we've become individualistic as opposed. And to I'm okay community. with people being individualistic as well as being communitarians. That the issue for me is how do we present the nuance that we have to have to protect you from going to jail when you know something. When I'm trying to do about, the right thing. When you're trying to do the right thing. Sure. We we even see it with whistleblowers. We see right. it with Edward Snowden. We see it with Chelsea Manning. We see it with all of these people who have stood up and said, I see something wrong, but the system that is in place punishes them. By the way, Chelsea Manning tried to commit, she su- did try to commit suicide. suicide this past week. Her lawyers were not told, but the media was told. Well, that was awful convenient and yep. great timing right after uh, everything that happened with Hillary Clinton. With Hillary. Um, now, can I give you an example? of? Yes, sir. I think, I think it was like six months after I got out and I was driving a car. So I'm driving and uh, I'm on I'm going east. I'm on 30th Street, but I'm going east. And as I'm driving past, I see a body just laying in the street. Don't know if it's dead or not, but I know when, when I were out, when, when, when I was out before, in the early 90s, you don't go check on somebody laying down because it's, cause they can just rob you if you go check. So I, I go down a little bit more and I call the off the police. Hey, man. I just seen someone laying down in, in the middle of the screen. Oh, did you do it? <laughs> I swear. I'm like, wow. do what? I'm just reporting. I am think I'm doing the right thing. I'm reporting that I mm-hmm. see somebody laying in the street. I don't know if he's breathing. I don't know. Well, well, did you see somebody hit him? No, I didn't. They said, okay, we have, we, we will send somebody there. It wasn't a month later a detective called me. Which way was you going? Was you going eastbound, westbound? Where was the body at? Interrogation. I'm like, mm-hmm. I thought I just did something positive. Well, we don't know, and we don't know what happened, so we got to interrogate everybody. I'm like, oh, it's never part again. of it's <laughs> part of holding somebody responsible yeah. for what happened and not necessarily seeking do, justice. Do you think, Brett, that had you or I called, that we would have gotten the same treatment as Jerome? Probably. Well, I probably would have stopped, mm-hmm. and that's just. I mean, I stop for people that are in need and that need help often. I would have kept driving. <laughs> 
<laughs> Considering <laughs> the neighborhood. Right. <laughs> no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You say East on 30th Street. I was yeah. like, I knew because I'm, I'm I picturing exactly it. I'm like, nah. Yeah. I don't live that far away. <laughs> Considering the neighborhood I'm and the situation and where I was going, I may not have stopped. I may have called. Um, but I actually refuse to dial 911 unless it is an absolute life or death life or death emergency and, and, because and, and it commits right back to you and, and, but it, it still does when you call the non-emergency number but i don't want to tie up actual emergency resources for I something that's it. not an emergency although we now found find out that they just route those right into 911 uh, but i listen if they don't give me my fries with my Big Mac at McDonald's. Nine one one. I'm calling nine one one because that is theft. Okay, so I, I pay. I paid a lot of money for those fries. To to answer your question, I think that we would have been treated very differently. I don't mm-hmm. even think we would have gotten the follow up call a month later. And, and the yeah. thing, I think just I got because the, of how we sound yeah. on the phone. Sure. I to me, I got the follow up call because once they ran who I was, sure. they saw that you were an offender, and they like, oh, he could have done that. Right. Sure. Trying to right. get out of it. Yeah. Right. So. Look, Let's talk about the, the, the idea of the community, um, because I don't think that this is a concept that a lot of white people understand, um, the, the concept of the black community. Um, when I think of black community, I think Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, and those are two people that I don't necessarily, it's not that I dislike, it's not that I dislike them, but it's, I certainly, I, I kind of look at Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson as hucksters. You know who are who? Maybe they do good for the black community. Maybe from your perspective, they do. But from my perspective, I've just been conditioned by Rush Limbaugh to think that they're they're hucksters. Um, I don't like them. Okay, and and so when I think of the black community, I think of pastors trying to take advantage of situations. And I was watching. Uh, there's a show called Blue Bloods, and listen, my experience with the black community it comes from SVU. It comes from Blue Bloods. It comes from <laughs> from movies. Um, and there, uh, Reverend Potter, he was, you know, basically there was a, an issue between the police chief and this black pastor and the black mayor is trying to do all this stuff. And, you know, then he gets uh, arrested by the end of the episode for extortion. Um, you know, and I think that is the concept that most white people have of what the black community is. And because there is no white community, I'm not, I mean, if I sat here and talked about my white pride and how proud I am of the white community, you know, I, you're going to start looking for the Iron Cross <laughs> on my body somewhere or, you know, that, that's just not a concept that, that white people understand. So can you explain, don't try to explain the black community to me. No, right? actually, <laughs> I was going to talk about there are... Um, Where you're from in Georgia, I'm sure there is a lot of white community pride. <laughs> actually, not where I'm from in Georgia, not so much. But what I was going to point out is there are actually... Stone Mountain, perchance? Well, <laughs> I didn't grow up there. Okay. Um, no, I was actually going to talk about a, a lot of it has to do with where you're from. There's a lot um, where my family in Chicago lives and is from. There's right. a lot of... Uh, German community, there's a lot of Polish community, there are a lot of things that happen specifically within those communities. So there is that pride in your heritage from what country in Europe you came to America from. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, so I, that's there. A long line of German Americans, so there is German but pride. But there is there. no overarching white community right. of people who are of English descent and German descent and Spanish descent and that there's not an overarching group in that way, but we do sub collect 
And and I do have a lot of things that I don't really talk about with you guys, but you see it like when we go for Dingus Day and mm-hmm. stuff that is Polish and is part of my heritage. And, you know, you a lot of people forget that I'm only the third generation born in America in my family. I'm German, so we don't celebrate anything. I'm, but I'm well, good, you're doing I'm, it wrong. I, I'm good German. I, I was here after slavery and before the Nazis. So like, <laughs> But I, I think that, that he brings up a valid point because uh, in the black community, um, we are um, unable to celebrate our individual heritages right. as far as the different tribes that we may have come from mm-hmm. because we don't know. It's been eradicated because we were brought from slavery over, and now it's just... The black community, it's not the Polish, the Nazis, the Puerto Ricans. The, you know what I mean? We have no, right. And that's one of the biggest things that uh, I find a, is uh, a problem is that we don't identify ourselves with anything. Right. Um, and, and because we don't have that heritage, um, we don't have that sense of pride. I marvel at the um, Mexican-Americans, um, the Latinos that... Um, or the immigrants that come over here and all of a sudden from absolutely nothing, they're running things. But mm-hmm. we've been here all this time and we ain't running nothing. You know, yeah. um, we have a black president. Um, a lot of people say, well, you know, because we have a black president, things will change, da-da-da. No, as long as Congress and Senate has the um, the power to veto and, and stop things from being passed— just because you have a black face in office does not mean that there's going to be justice and equality for all. And if anything, it feels like we're more divided racially, more polarized in the last than, decade than before Barack Obama was in office. And I don't know. I'm not going to pin that on him. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think though that his ascension to the presidency may have had a reaction that helped to polarize that. Right. But I don't know that I would directly. Well, I certainly think you see the use of white supremacy by Donald Trump as as a tool to get elected. Yes. Which would show you. Right. That it still exists. Exactly. Because, of course, I mean, I I don't know if if it was just me, but, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people have noticed you don't hear about the KKK anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you think they died? They disappeared? <laughs> you know, right. no, they just have become more savvy in the way they do things, mm-hmm. and they're smarter. Um, and, and this is the thing, you know, um, we have to understand where we are, and we have to understand what we're up against. And, and unfortunately, uh, for those of us who are trying to be inclusive and not trying to be separatists, mm-hmm. um, those who want to have that, kumbaya moment of a melting pot and everyone doing the right thing and you know we've got to understand that we have to eradicate a whole bunch of stuff before we're even going to get close to the kumbaya Mm -hmm. you know there are there are just so many things that need to be changed adjusted reviewed looked at turned upside down because like i said you know those who were lynching us not too long ago are now you know have understood that well let's kind of take this and become political with it Mm-hmm. Let's kind of just, you know, disappear and take this um, white man killing black men off the table. But at the same time, we can do it another way. We can let the people in uniform do it. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just amazing how the sa- it's the same result. You can you can say what you want, but the bottom line at the end of the day is we are still dying. And, and one of the, the, the main things that I'd also like to share is that 
while we are dying out here in the streets daily, while we are dying, it makes it very difficult for me to process what's going on politically, to, to have a certain type of opinion. If I've got to worry about my family, mm -hmm. my son being killed, mm -hmm. I don't care nothing about the vote. I don't sure. care who's voting. Right. I don't care who's running for office. I don't care about all these other things that everyone else is, is, thinks is a, such a big deal. But it is a big deal. It's a man's all hierarchy of needs. I mean, yeah. There you go. Right. And, yeah. But but, but a, if my babies are dying, then that's my most important right. survival. Sure. And know. that's not a thing that Chris and I are thinking about on a daily basis, mm -mm. which is why we have the time. Right. And, and we can make the effort. No, I have, the, I have the most basic needs. Uh, I, you know, I have food. I have water. I have security. I have shelter. I have you internet. Have I have internet. Don't step on my joke. <laughs> well, and then, but, but wait, but here you go. Suppose somebody was murdering cats. Oh, oh. well, now I'm outraged. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But were they black cats? <laughs> well, regardless, you're a cat lover. So, I mean, I'm just saying they were, well, you know, suppose cats. someone was doing that, then your mind, in your mind, that's an issue mm -hmm. for you that's going to be, that's going to hit home. And mm -hmm. so now you may not be as concerned with this little detail of, uh, Bill Clinton passing this law about three strikes you're out, mm -hmm. and mandatory sentencing, mm -hmm. and da da da. You know, you don't you. So you miss that. Sure. And so it's like, by the time you get off of, oh my baby's down here bleeding and dying, and okay, we've gone to the funeral, we've done the repast, and da da da. And now I'm trying to get myself back together because now I'm living a life without a child. My son is traumatized because he saw his brother shot down in the streets by the police. Da da da. And all the things that you have to go through as a black family, and they wonder why we don't vote. <laughs> because we don't have time to to understand the issues in the way that they need to be understood because we're dealing with survival issues as opposed to right. things that are the bigger picture. Sure. One thing I want to jump on with the last thing he said about not voting, um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, let's face it, you can't. Oh, boy, the, the things that they said, the hurdles that you got to jump through. And so I, I take back. I look back at something, one of the first political lessons I learned when I was talking, you know, when I was considering running for office and I was helping uh, candidates who were running for office, the the standard mindset was it does not matter how you appeal to the black males mm -hmm. that you would represent because in a four-year cycle, two-thirds of them will not be able to vote again hmm. because, one, they're going to prison. Two, they are a little more mobile. And they are moving, and so they won't have changed their registration, so they won't be, they won't be anymore. So you take a look when you get the voter file, and you see black and male in the voter file, and if they didn't vote in the most recent election, you didn't bother to stop. But mm. the, common, the common thought when it comes to campaigning is that you ignore the black male because if it was in a four-year cycle, two-thirds of them will not be voting. So from sure. 2008 to 2012, two-thirds, if, if that number, and again, this is— just standard campaign tools and tricks and techniques, things that I learned, um, then that means that two-thirds of the people who voted in 2008 uh, that were black males that voted in that presidential election did not vote in 2012. Mm -hmm. Or they did not vote in that same geographic area in wow. 2012. Never even thought of that as a concept. But one of the things you can do is you can go to the black women because the black women are— Stable. Stable. They are the matriarch. They are the ones that are holding everybody you are together. Absolutely right. And so, when it comes to appealing to the black community, it does not matter what you, either one of you think, right? Regardless of your status as a voter, I want to know 
what the female thinks. Yes, I want to know what your fiance thinks. Mm-hmm. I want to know what your fiance thinks. Because you know, never having uh, had a relationship with a black woman, I'm just guessing you do whatever she says, right? That's the reputation. Well, <laughs> yeah, well no, no. What it is is that, and and what people don't really understand is that for the black female. She is the one that has good credit. Mm-hmm. She is the one that um, basically is the consumer, the, is the you know uh, has the economics and deals with the economics in the family. Because usually, we were in prison, right? You know, and so therefore she has the stability, yep. and so therefore that's why their vote matters because they're the ones that has the money in order to go out and buy cars and do this, that, and the other, and, and feed the family, what have you. We have been basically destroyed as head of household, head of household. Mm-hmm. And now most females, all you have to do is look at tax returns. Tax returns. Most of the females are are listing as head head of household. Mm. Uh, so I mean, you know, it, he has he brings a valid valid point. And I'm glad you brought that insight because just like Chris said, there's a lot of people who don't know that and they don't understand the systematic ways that they make it more difficult for. Not only uh, black men to vote, but whether or not their vote counts at all. So when I was running for reelection and I was looking at the demographic data and and the things that were happening um, and looked as a postmortem about how um, the voters in the district actually showed up, what I found was that despite having 45 percent of the registered voters in the area where I ran that were black, and nearly 50% of the people that lived in that district were black. The voter turnout in my particular election, 6% of the black, of people that were identified as black in their voter registration showed yeah. up to vote for that particular election, which meant that about 80% of the people who showed up were white and made the decisions, right. and the 14% that showed up, surprisingly, were Hispanic. Yeah. But it was a district that was very diverse, nearly 50% black, nearly 30% Hispanic, and the remainder was white mm. in the area where I, where I ran for office. Why do you think that most blacks vote Democrat? Specifically because most of them don't know the history. and They don't know the history that we were once Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, most most blacks and in, in most black communities um, vote Democrat simply because that's all they know. That's what they've been taught mm-hmm. um, uh, through generations. Things have changed. And, and now we uh, no longer, um, um, I guess, side. We, we see the Republicans as bad people. Um, well, I think uh, if you, if if your community and your neighbors and the people around you, criminal justice reform has to be a, a large topic. And Republicans, yes, you know, that's not it, something that you do. watch the last uh, gubernatorial debate and you watch Rupert, the libertarian, stand up there and, and, you know, have the discussion that we're having and saying, listen, we need to lessen drug offenses. We need to reform the criminal justice system. We're warehousing people for profit and it's wrong. And then the Democrat kind of says, yeah, I agree with him a little bit, but we still need to do this. And then you've got Mike Pence going, I'm going to strengthen pot laws and there, send this people will, to prison. This will be this is a we quote. People to, this oh. is a quote. This will be the worst state in the union to commit a crime. And that's scary. And that he wanted people to drive around Indiana <laughs> despite being the crossroads. <laughs> right. Of America. Right. Um, you know, I, but I, I honestly believe that that's one of the issues that in the black community. 
um, that my my organization, Growing Indy, is trying to um, deal with. We are um, reaching out to people and trying to get people to understand the voting process uh, and the fact that, um, you know, you have independence. You know, you don't have to vote Democrat or Republican uh, or even Libertarian. You can vote as an independent, you know what I mean? Uh, and then uh, when you go to, uh, to vote uh, and they have someone that you like, just because that person may be a Democrat that you do like doesn't mean that you vote a straight Democratic ticket, mm -hmm. that everyone that you vote for is Democratic. Um, just because you know that one person doesn't mean that all these other people have your best interest at heart. And so those are, those are some of the things that we are trying to teach people. And I personally am trying to teach ex-offenders uh, because that's the one blessing that we do have here in the state of Indiana that you can vote whether or not you're on probation, parole, ankle bracelet, whatever. When you are released and no longer part of the Department of Corrections, your, your vote counts. Mm. And so... You know, my vision is um, I know we have at least 20,000, uh, and that's just a, that's a lowball figure of ex-offenders in the state of Indiana uh, or just here in the city of Indianapolis. And so my thing, my, my uh, vision is to uh, gather as many ex-offenders as possible and create a voting platform and, and get people to register and not only register but understand, you know, what it means to vote because I honestly believe, and this is just my personal opinion, that no person should be able to come out of prison and come back to society and be accepted into society if you're not part of the voting process. Mm -hmm. Because it's just like, you know, you're out of the game while you're in prison. Well, in order for you to get back into the game and be part of the community, you need to be required to vote. What, sure. what does it take in Indiana to have your voting rights restored? All you have to do is register. Yeah, you... Okay. There, I, is, I no, sure. there is no... There is no... There is no paperwork you have to fill out. There's okay. no, All you have to do when you come home is register to vote. I believe that once you are incarcerated, your voter registration is voided. But, right. And then once so you, you have to re-register. You have to re-register re at, at whatever your new address is. And like is. you were saying earlier about moving, um, if you and if you have not if you have not voted, say you register today and if, if the next election comes around or whatever, if you have not voted within a certain amount of time, sure. you definitely have to re-register if you've moved a certain amount of miles away or whatever into another uh, district. Uh, that was my only and, – and I think that the fear that most of the guys coming home have, it's interesting because I had it. Mm -hmm. And I never realized how traumatic and monumental voting was mm -hmm. until I finally voted for the first time. And I went in there with my girlfriend, and I said, I'll just follow you. Just kind of show me what to do. Because <laughs> the one thing that we don't want to look is stupid. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. As a guy who's grown and you're a grown man and you got kids and and you don't even know how to vote. Well, it, you talked last episode about, you know, it was very a very powerful statement. It was when you've robbed me of everything, including my dignity, I'm going to hold on to self-respect and you will not disrespect me. And so that creates a culture of honor. And so if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's uh, I think it's The Outliers and he talks about a culture of honor versus a culture of achievement. Right. You know, I grew up in a culture of achievement where the achievements are how you gain self-worth versus a culture of honor where you will not disrespect me, you will not make me feel stupid, you will not make... You know, so cultures of honor have a much different uh, view. So, yeah, you don't want to look stupid. So it, it becomes, in a culture of honor, it's much harder to have... Um, 
emotional health because mm. you're afraid to admit that you don't know how to do right. certain things. And to go into, uh, and you also have to understand too that usually in, because uh, I'm trying to picture it now, I'm trying to picture what the voting situation looked like when I walked in because we went to a school. And of course, all of the people there, most, the majority of the people are older that work the polls. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so these are older black people a lot of times, depending mm-hmm. upon your community. Um, and so now you're even more concerned with looking inept or stupid or unknowledgeable about the process. Um, we walk around with our chests out trying to act like, you know, we, we, we got it all together. But that's what everyone does on a daily basis. Right. There are things that Chris doesn't know, that Brett doesn't know, that Daron doesn't know, that, that Richard doesn't know. But we're not going to tell everybody what we don't know. Because then we're vulnerable, mm-hmm. okay? And so that's kind of the mindset. We don't want people to know that we don't know. And so, like, I whispered to my girlfriend, you know, I'll just follow you and I'll just kind of see what you do. Well, I kind of got freaked out because when they told her to step forward, they told me to stay back. And so she went over to this table and I didn't know what was going on and I almost turned around and left, mm. you know? And and that's the thing. It's like, man, I got to start somewhere, you know? So I said, well, okay, I'm going to stay and stick it out. And then she knew she, cause she, so when she was done at the end, all it was, was there's a list that has your name on it, you know, that says where you live and your address and tells you, you know, that you're at the right voting place. Mm -hmm. And she said, baby, it's all right. Come on. And I was like, cause she knew, she knew that I probably was going to bolt. And so she said, no, no. She said, wait a minute. It's all right. This is just, you, they're just going to tell you where you, if you're at the right place or not. And you are, I know you are. And so when she so said, well, can we have your name? And I gave her my name and they start flipping through the papers and flipping through the papers and they couldn't find me. I was ready to leave in. Mm-hmm. And I was, they was like, well, wait a minute. We've got another stack of papers. <laughs> right. And so they went on and they found me and I was like, okay. So she was like, Okay, now she's behind the curtain doing her thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, can I go see what she's doing? Well, you know, the, the voting booths are private, but if she doesn't have a problem with you being there, you know. And so, and that's how I learned. Right. And I realized that, oh, this is what I was afraid of. Yeah. You know, but the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Right. Fear of the unknown, I think, is the key phrase. And I think that's for everyone the fear of the unknown is really there was um i was reading uh the screw tape letters by cs lewis it's a christian book and it's in let me let me dive in for a second because i just want to say something to you yeah yeah. chris Uh uh-huh i want your list of books (laughs) okay because you know it's uh, you i forget what it what the last one you were talking about Uh um when you said before that one the outliers, um, the outliers, outliers, yes, outliers, that yeah. definitely. He talks about that in every episode. You, yeah. and, and and I'm just, you know, it, obviously, um, being well read is something that I'm learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Daron and I are very well read um, because in prison, that's all you have time to do. Yeah, absolutely. I've gotten to the place where now I understand that out here, I have to make that same time for my reading mm-hmm. as I did while I was incarcerated because. That's where I became the intellectual is while I was reading and all of the books that have come across um, uh, secrecy, the, the rule of secrecy. Just, there's just so many uh, books that I um, 
the, uh, the masters. Just there's just a lot of you know who moved my cheese, basic stuff. You mm-hmm. know the basic seven habits of highly effective people, all of that type of stuff. Those type of books have really allowed me to become the person you're listening to. Yeah, and so I always um, look for. Um, recommended reading. Wait, well, I have a whole list. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait until <laughs> I, I get you on. Wait till I get you on Brene Brown. You'll never get off it. But the the Screw Tape Letters is by C.S. Lewis, and it's a it's a Christian book, and it's uh, le- letters between an uncle and a nephew, uh, two demons, and uh, the demons uh, are you know the the uncle is giving advice to the younger nephew who is in charge of making sure that his client goes to hell. Hmm. And so he is just giving him advice on how to keep him away from the quote unquote enemy, which is goodness, which is the light, which are angels, right. which are Christians, which are uh, Jesus himself. And he talks about this brief period. And in, in every endeavor, there is this brief period. I think it's chapter two or three. In every endeavor that he will take, there is a brief period of time where they're most fearful. It's right before you jump out of the plane. You know, you're always afraid to jump out of the plane, and then once you embark on the endeavor and you don't have all the knowledge and you're not sure and your mind starts wondering and it's like you you made the, you had the courage to get into the room, right. but it's that period between getting in the room and completing the task that there's that fear and the fear of the unknown. And so I think in, in every one of our lives, there's always that, that th- jumping out of the plane... And then that period right after you've made the decision where you really just go, oh, crap. And I, and I imagine that emotional health in emotional health in men is a disaster. But I imagine in the young black male, it's it's got to be even worse. And that is a great contributor to a lot of of issues within the black community. Absolutely. There's just there's just uh, so much emotionally um, that we have to deal with that are that's on our plate. Um, that you know what you're saying is is so absolutely true about that fear. Um, and once we get out there, and, and I'm you know I'm experiencing it now. You know I'm in the midst of you know here's a person who has done 26 years in prison, uh, who's come home, uh, who's found rejection and and all of that. Um, but at the same time, understanding that I have to put one foot in front of the other to continue to move forward because I know what's possible. Um, I know that um, free will allows me to do whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be confident and secure and understanding that that will happen for me is very difficult because of my life experiences. Um, now, um, uh, it's very important that I finish and it's just like what you're talking about as far as once you get in it, I'm very vulnerable now that, you know, somebody can just kind of push me over and be like, oh, okay, we got him, mm-hmm. you know. But now I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I think very, very hard about uh, making sure that I'm here for the long haul and that I'm here to finish the game and I'm here to make sure that what I've started com- is completed. And, and like I say, um, you know, my push is for ex-offenders to um, um, realize their potential um, and, and understand that, you know, the thing that we were robbed of 
while we were incarcerated, irregardless as to whether you're guilty, not guilty. The bottom line is when you spend time in the system, it affects you. Yeah. And, um, you know, once you've been affected, that's something you can't undo. You can't go back and unsee the things you've saw, seen. You can't go back and unhear the things you've heard, uh, experience the things that, you know, um, <laughs> my, my girlfriend was looking at my hand the other day. Um, and she was just rubbing my hands and she realized that this knuckle is way back here. And she was like, what happened? And I said, well, this is the hand that I used to hit people the most. And so, and, and, and it was interesting because she had, it was something she'd never considered about the abuse that just this hand has taken. And it was something that I had never considered about how many things that have happened to my body and, and to the way I thought was based upon my prison experiences. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just re- it's really you have to recognize that it affects you uh, dramatically. And um, but I, uh, to your point, I really just believe that now it's all about finishing uh, what I've stepped into and em- embracing. Uh, the most important thing for me is to now recognize the importance of relationships and recognize the importance of meeting people like Chris, meeting people like Brett, you know, um, uh, understanding that there are so many people out here who are not what we are not the demons that we think that are stuck in our heads to say, well, because his skin is white, he's against me. Uh, uh, because this person has brown skin, they don't care about my situation. You know, there are a lot of Latinos, there are a lot of um, um, other ethnicities that, you know, for a while, I was like, well, because I'm black, I don't care about nothing but nobody but about black people. Mm-hmm. And I realize more and more now that the more people that I allow into my life and I let that guard down and I allow people to come in and give me their views and talk about, um, you know, the type of confidence that you, uh, Chris, have that just in sitting here talking to you today, um, it helps me grow confident within myself to say, okay, well, if he feels like the world is his oyster, well, why can't I feel the same way? Absolutely. And, and you know, why can't I, you know, feel like I have an opportunity to go out and I can live anywhere I want to and as long as I'm making the right kind of money and da-da-da. But we also know that at some point, and I'm honestly, just to be straight up honest, I'm waiting for it because I'm doing so well, okay, with my organization and the things that I'm doing and moving forward and the events that we're planning and the things that at some point, Somebody's going to pull my criminal history out and drag it out and say, oh, but he's an ex-offender. When we get to the point where we're so big that we're really making positive change, somebody's going to dredge that out and say, look at what a bad person he was. Because it's the exact thing that they do when they shoot our people in the streets. The first thing they want to know is, did he have a criminal history? I've seen uh, Castillo didn't have a, a permit. I've seen, you know, look at his, his criminal record for Sterling. I mean, that's the first thing. Right. And it's never a black person that does that. <laughs> it's never, it's always a person that votes largely Republican that is the one publishing on my status. You know, isn't this awful that this black man was killed by a police officer? Yeah, but here's his criminal record. Right. And, you know, we just have to get to a point where you have conversations like we've had in these two episodes where people get to meet people like yourself and Jerome. Say, so you know what? Yeah, they may have done something bad or they have had something bad happen to them or they may come from a different culture or they may come from a different community. But it. so what if Richard used to be, beat people up? 
He came into my house. We've had a great conversation. I've asked him questions that I don't think a lot of white people would ask a, a, right. a, a black ex-offender. Like, so why do you, you made a face when I said, so why do black people vote Democrat? <laughs> and then you, your face twisted, and I went, uh-oh. I'm <laughs> but you know what? You, uh, it, it is it's not being afraid to talk to each other. Right, it's it's right. about having a conversation, and that's one of the great things about being involved in Rupert's Kids over the years is getting to meet people in that program that I didn't grow up with. I had a, I had a good childhood. Now, I had a, a dysfunctional, chaotic family life. And so, yeah, I do. I did grow up with the fear of this thing over here is out to get me. Mm-hmm. And that thing is always the government or... You know, your mom's going to yell at you or, you know, you can't let things get too good or, or as soon as you think, oh, life's great, everything's going to go to shit. Mm. You know, like that comes from growing up in a, in a dysfunctional family. Those are human emotions. And I think once we all can get to the point where we all go, wow, you two went, I may not have gone to prison, but I understand the, em- I have empathy for the emotions that you went through. You're a human being just like I am. That's when we really start to connect with each other, and that's when we really start to go, something's got to change because these are human beings. These are not just some avatars on TV, you know? And that's what one of the authors talked about on Democracy Now! that I listened to the other day. I think the books like The Invisible Man or the, I don't know, like how, how people like Sterling are nobodies. They're nowhere in the system, they're lost in the system, they're just nowhere and then this thing happens to them and they become an avatar for a cause and even then with all the candlelight visuals and airbrush t-shirts and you know use of fundraiser all this all the outpouring of support they become avatars they don't we never really even get down to consider their humanity and we have to we have to get to a place where we can say you know what when I when I watched the Castile video, I felt empathy and compassion for the officer, to be quite frank. Yeah, he murdered somebody, but you listen to that officer's tone of voice and the panic and the he's clearly traumatized by what had just what had just happened, you know. So that's a human being too, just like Castile is a video, uh, a human. So just like the girlfriend. You know, and that compassion, I think, is is what we all need to work on and just kind of break down this, you know, we're all running to each other's camps. You know, we're like, here's my talking points. This is a criminal. Sterling didn't deserve to die in a parking lot for having a past because it's real easy as a young black man in America to get a past, you know, and uh just because Jerome has a felony, that doesn't make him less than a human being. Um, and and it doesn't matter a, a criminal skin color, <laughs> you know. It, it's it's tough out there for for young white males from disadvantaged areas, from poverty stricken areas. You're a kid. You're a white kid from here in Indianapolis, and you live in Mars Hill or Hallville. You're growing up with a lot of the same struggles. You know, you're. You're you're struggling. It's that bottom fifteen percent. Um, any final thoughts, Daron? I mean, you th- that you want to share with people before we wrap up? I think I think like I said in the last episode, I just wish people would just I mean understand the criminal justice system better before they 
judge it and, and, and kind of understand people who's coming out of it because we are human and we everyone makes mistakes, be it small or big, but it's still a mistake. And, and I don't know, I just, I just guess people should really understand the person who went into the criminal justice system too because it, like, like in my situation, I think I have been owned by the state of Indiana be I mean, be it foster home or the criminal justice system since I was eight and just got released from, well, I'm still confined by him, but almost there. <laughs> yeah. A couple of weeks. And, and, and no one would know that if I didn't tell them because, but they don't want to see what I've been through. All they want to see is what he supposedly have did. And that's saying, that's how we're going to judge him for, for the rest of his life. And basically, I just want people to, to understand us more and get to know us and know that we're all not bad people. I mean, even though they say we did something bad, we made it out of there, and that's something positive itself. Mm-hmm. Brett? I, I just, you know, I'm Daron and I have been friends for two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I told in episode 160, uh, Daron was the first friend that I made up here after I moved up here. Um and for those of you who listened to episode 160, um, when Daron was talking about what it was like when he was interrogated and, and the, the plea bargaining conversations, um, and even when we talked before this, the show about why what Daron was charged with, that was never stuff that we discussed until that day because it didn't matter to me. And I think that if we are communicating with people and we are learning about people and we are befriending people that are different from us um, we're going to have an enriched life we're going to have an engaging conversation I hope we're going to have um, you know I've had the opportunity to um, also become a part of I won't I won't say her name um, but but their own girlfriend mm-hmm. and her kids um, and get, getting to know them. Um, and to me, it, it's, it's an enriching part of my life. And while I knew before we talked uh, on that episode why, mm-hmm. um, like what you were charged with, just because part of the due diligence for working with Rupert's kids was knowing what, you know, if in the event that we were going to an event that had kids, we wanted to make sure there wasn't anybody who had any, you know, m- issues with minors and things like that. Um, so it was necessary for me to know, but I didn't know the story. Yeah. I knew what I saw on mycase.gov, and that's what I saw. But to me, that didn't matter, and I wish that more people would take a look and see that a case file does not define a person. Right. And we talked about that with uh, with Sterling. You look at his case file, because that's basically all it is, is a bunch of charges and dates. Right. You don't know the story. You don't know that the, the girl that he was that he went to prison over for having an, an age-inappropriate relationship in the eyes of the state later had his kid, and I believe they were engaged at one point after he got out of prison. You don't see that when you just read a case file. You don't, you don't get to know the person. And so until you get to know the people and until you're engaging with people that are different from you, you're not going to your, your experience is not going to be enriched. And, and I think that if we took the time to understand and not judge based on a one off instance or what we may or may not know or a case file or whatever it is, um, whatever the situation is and, and how we came to meet them, we're going to have a better life, period. Richard. 
Yes. Um, uh, we uh, grow as growing indie. Um, I, I'd like to um, also share that we have a new program that we're starting called um, Peer to Peer Recovery, um, where we um, uh, are mentoring each other. Um, ex-offenders who have come home and who have basically acclimated themselves back into society and are doing the right thing are now reaching out to ex-offenders who are just getting out and trying to show them how to um, walk the walk and, and, and take those steps in order to be uh, becoming self-sufficient and uh, uh, acclimated back into society. Uh, we, of course, we talk about voting. We talk about all of those things that we talked about here on the show today. Um, also, um, there is an event uh, coming up on July the 30th. Um, it will be held, and we're asking everyone to come out. We're asking all walks, all nationalities, all races, all the ethnicities. We're asking everyone to come out and support this event. Uh, it's, um, it's being sponsored by Peacekeepers 2, um, uh, whose um, CEO is uh, Horatio Luster, um, who uh, used to be part of the Ten Point Coalition, but they, they branched off into doing other things. Um, we at Growing Indie are partnering with this organization. We also have like 60 uh, other businesses uh, that have partnered with the organization as well for this particular event on July the 30th. Uh, it'll be held at School 69. Uh, the, there's, it's a parking lot right there on the corner of uh, 34th and Keystone. Uh, it is uh, 3421 North Keystone Avenue. Uh, and and uh, we're asking everyone to come out. We're going to have people who now now we started planning this event before all of these tragedies came up, mm -hmm. and it just so happens that um, in the midst of all the shootings and, and the deaths that have occurred, um, you know that's we're going to have um, representation from um, the mothers of uh, uh, and families of people who have lost loved ones. We're going to give them an opportunity to uh, be there. We're, we're asking for the mayor. We're asking for law enforcement. We're asking for fire department people. We're asking for anyone who has a business that wants to be a part of it. We will attach your name to, to it. Like I said, we already have about 60 organizations, and the, and the list is growing. Um, we did not want to do what most people are doing. Everybody's trying to pop up with a quick march and a quick this and say about the killings and that type of thing. We gave it that we wanted to give it 30 days because we wanted to plan something that was organized and make sure that it had some effect. Um, we're tired of just talking. We want some solutions. And so when I say that, what we're going to do on the 30th is we're going to first of all show up. And that's one of the biggest things in the black community is making. So, and, and you can see it with our voting uh, turnout. We want to show that not only can we show up, but we can show up and be involved in in, in a process that's about the right thing. Um, uh, once we show up and they see this mass of people, this mass of humanity, all colors, all shades, all ethnicities, then we're going to talk about how we can move forward in uh, making sure that uh, our voices are heard. Of course, we're going to have some demands because there are things that we want um, we don't want to continue to be recognized by um, the police department or the city, uh, the local city government to say who our leaders are. 
we want to pick our leaders. We want leaders from the, the ground roots level. We want leaders from the neighborhood, people who are doing well and doing the right things in the community. Um, you know, just because you pastor a church and you've got a bunch of money, that doesn't make you my leader. I want a leader that I see on a regular basis every day. I want a leader that I have his phone number on speed dial, that I can call him when there's something going on in my community. I want to be able to to, to not only talk to him, but to not be alienated to the point where I can't contact the police when something's going on. You know what I'm saying? I don't want someone to have to, well, I got to tell you, and then now you're going to tell the police for me. You know, I want someone that truly represents the type of um, area that I live in and and understands my struggle. And so we want to pick our own community leaders, and that's one of the things that we're also uh, going to do uh, on the 30th is make sure that, Uh, Anyone who wants to be a part of what we're doing becomes a part of it. And then uh, uh, once you're given a seat at the table, definitely your voice will be heard. Um, I just really think that this event is going to change something. And I think that the reason it's going to change something, because first of all, people are going to see that we can actually come together. You know, a lot of times, you you know, I, I've gone to a lot of events and there's seven people in the room. There's three people in the room. And it is so discouraging when you're trying to do something that is so positive that you know will help the community and no one shows up. Well, this is something different. And this is why we chose to take a longer period of time to, to try and organize and assemble it is because we wanted to make sure that it was successful on a larger scale. And this is just the very beginning. So please come on out July 30th. Everyone's welcome. Uh, 30, uh, 3421 North Keystone Avenue from 3 p.m. to 7 o'clock in the evening. Um, uh, and I'm sure that afterwards there'll be networking sessions. Everybody will be passing out cards and getting to know one another. And then from that, we intend to uh, ask that everyone come back and bring one more person. Mm-hmm. And so we are, we intend to multiply. How can people get in touch with you? You can get in touch with me through growing indie. Uh, my number is three, one, seven, nine, nine, two, eight, two, three, six. That is not an office number. That is my personal number. And you'll be able to talk to me immediately. And uh, uh, I am willing to, uh, I'm looking for actually looking for anyone who, uh, is an ex-offender who is looking to become a part of our peer-to-peer recovery program. And that's one of the things that I was talking about with you, Darone, that um, I wanted to get with you because I know uh, your passion for um, uh, reentry and, and making sure that uh, people who have experienced the things that we've gone through um, uh, to not have to continue to experience that. And so uh, hopefully you will um, become one of our uh, mentors as well. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just a matter of making sure that we take someone who uh, has just come out and basically showing them what, you know, we've already been through. So, yeah. And, Chris, I really appreciate the opportunity, man, yeah. uh, coming back and talking to you. Brett, it was definitely nice seeing you got you again. Yes, um, uh, I just have he, to say that he I— He doesn't m- get that very often, so— <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that I miss Chloe. So, Chloe, wherever you are, you know, uh, hope you're having a great time. Uh, and like I said, thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Daron. Thank you, for Richard, for uh, coming here and sharing your story with our listeners. I know the first episode, we got a lot of great feedback. A lot of people were really touched by what you had to say. And and uh, hopefully it changes a lot of minds. I mean, the, the national organization that we were talking about earlier, Freedom Works, tens of thousands of people on their social media, they shared it with uh, with their group. And they're hopefully going to share this one again so we can... Get the word out there. Um, You know, I just want to, you know, not to disagree with 
Richard, because I, I don't disagree that a community should pick their leaders. I just want to impress upon anybody that's listening. Um, it's one of the foundational principles of libertarianism and our show that we are all our own leader. And that if anyone takes away our right to be our own leader, then that person is wrong and that person should be fought against. And that is injustice. And may I? Absolutely. Um, and I don't believe that when you say that, that you're disagreeing with me. Sure. Because I honestly believe that that is kind of what we're looking for in a community. We're tired of basically having being represented by puppets. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so basically, um, if we can be taught to be leaders, then then we'll have a better understanding of, like I say, I think that you have an understanding of life that is different than our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're, you're privileged to be able to, okay, well, I can be a leader. Whereas we have been taught there's no leader in us. Sure. You know, and so now we're just now getting to the place where we understand that. And so um, we are definitely looking. I would definitely want someone who understands my experience. You don't have to have gone to prison to understand my experience. But if you're going to represent me, I want you to be able to represent me properly and sure. to know what's important to me. And so that's where I, we are as far as leadership. Yeah, I think it's key that every person, you know, my road to self-empowerment was quicker than yours, you know, because of uh, of having those needs met quicker and coming from a, a more stable home or a more stable life than, than maybe the two of you. Uh, and what we want to do here at We Are Libertarians is just explain, like, here's here's how the people you're voting for impact the lives of people who don't have a voice. You know, the people that you vote for, when you walk into a ballot box, it's life or death. It's life or death for Castile and Sterling. It's life and death for Darone. It's life and death for Harry. It's life and death for Brett and I. The, the force of the state carries with it death as a finality. If you don't do what government wants you to do, they will bankrupt you or they will steal your liberty or they will kill you. And the people that you vote for, you have to vote wisely. You have to make sure that they understand humanity and dignity and individualism and that we don't want leaders who are going to lead for us because they know best for us. We want leaders who will get the government out of the way so that we may be self-empowered and make choices for ourselves. Because as you heard in this episode in 160, I don't, I don't think that Richard and Jerome started out thinking that I can make decisions for myself. There is a force greater than I that has me in a funnel headed a certain direction. And that is what we must end as a society because it is wrong. Self-empowerment, dare I say self-government, for which Brett advocates, uh, is, is an essential part of libertarianism, and it should be an essential part of anyone you vote for. It should be an essential part of the people that are around you because you are made up of the five people that are closest to you. So... With that, I just want to say thank you to Darone, to Richard, to Brett for for this great experience and this great conversation, and to FreedomWorks for sparking this great conversation. And please share one ep- episode 160 and episode 164, I believe this is, uh, 163. 
with your friends and family so we can start changing hearts and minds because that is what libertarians have to do. It isn't about getting the right... It's not about philosophy. It's not getting the right uh, metrics, (laughs) my dear INTJs. It's (laughs) about changing hearts and minds. And uh, that's what we're trying to do here. So please, get involved in your community. uh, Get yourself informed. And as we have this national conversation on police versus, let's face it, it feels like it's blacks versus police, but it isn't. It is all of us are in this together, and we've got to find a way to work together. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.